I want to welcome um, those of us, uh, those of you who are listening to our podcast this morning. Appreciate the fact that you're listening uh, to us here at City Church, but uh, if all you're doing is listening, I want to tell you you're missing out. We have some of the best music. Uh, in fact, I would go so far as to say we have the best music in the city. And uh, I don't... <laughs> Not trying to brag about that or anything, but we would just invite you to come join us some Sunday morning uh, for worship uh, as well. We're in the fourth week of a series uh, that we've been in called Time for a Change. And what we've been talking about is um, the gospel method of change. We're going to conclude this series next week. Uh, and then on February the 16th, so that's two weeks from now, we're going to start a new series. And it'll be, it's going to be called New Marriage, Same Spouse. And so we encourage you to be uh, looking forward to that and getting prepared for that. And invite friends, invite family, invite uh, uh, others that you know that could uh, use a new marriage with the same spouse. So invite, feel free to invite them to come and be a part of that. In this present series, as I said, we've been looking at the fact that the gospel says quite counterculturally that radical and substantive change is possible. And we've been talking about what is it, how does the gospel bring about that change? Uh, how do you change the gospel way? And it doesn't matter how long you've uh, been alive, doesn't matter how long you've been a follower of Christ, you can still change. There is still room to change. And you can still change. It is still possible. And how do you do that? How do you change uh, the gospel way? We've been looking at three verses in the book of Ephesians that very clearly lay out the gospel method of change. And if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to look at these same three verses again, verses 22 to th- uh, 24. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 to 24. And by the way, I should mention to you as you're turning there that the ideas here in Ephesians chapter 4 are repeated at other places in the New Testament. So it's very consistent. Uh, Romans chapter 6 and 7, uh, Colossians chapter 3, same ideas that are repeated that we're going over here in Ephesians chapter 4 are repeated there. And so sometime in your spare time, you might want to take the opportunity to read those passages of Scripture as well. So let's read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses uh, 22 to 24. We're going to go back there and look at it again. Here we go. Verse 22, you were taught... With regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and verse 24, to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So the gospel of method of change, this passage says, has uh, two parts and then there's a bridge. The first part is put off your old self. We talked about this last week. Put off your old self. Then there's a bridge. And the bridge is be made new in the attitude of your minds. We'll talk about that next week. Then the third part, or excuse me, the other part to which the bridge uh, connects is put on the new self. We're going to talk about that uh, this week. Put on the new self. That's what we're going to talk about today. Now, just but but just a quick review of where we were last week and and some of the things we talked about with regard to putting off the old self. And I may add just a couple of things quickly before we get on to put on the new self. Okay, just a quick review. I want you to note that the assumption in these verses is that even after you have responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're still going to wrestle with the old self. Do you see that? You're still going to wrestle with the old self. Now. That's why Paul says, put off the old self. Now, here's why I mention this. I think this is important. If you were to speak to the average person in Evansville, or any other city for that matter, you would find that many of those people that you, that you speak with were once part of a church, but were turned off by the church's hypocrisy and judgmentalness. 
And that, is, that can only be because the church really didn't understand the gospel. If a church understands the gospel, it is logically impossible for that church to be hypocritical and judgmental. Because as you see here, the gospel teaches that no one has it all together. That no one uh, can, has any reason to boast. And so you come to City Church for the first time, maybe you've been more than one time, I don't know, but you've been coming for a while and you say, man, you know, I'm struggling with sexual issues and I've been struggling with drugs or I've been struggling with my marriage or my kids or, or whatever. And what I want you to understand is that everyone else here, including me, uh, all of us can say, uh, I get it. I totally get it. Let me tell you what I struggle with. Because see, if you understand the gospel, you understand there's no reason for hypocrisy. There's no room for judgmentalness. Yeah, let me just speak to this. Let me just say something. If you were to ask my family, if you were to ask, does, does, does your dad, does your husband, does he live everything he preaches? They would tell you no. Now, that's not to, that's not to say that I, I think that they would tell you. I honestly think they would tell you he wants to. Uh, he's working on it. But he has not arrived. <laughs> and you see, you can't be, um, it's not hypocritical to say, I preach something, but I don't live it. I'm trying, but that's not hypocritical. What's hypocritical is to say, I preach it, I really don't live it, but I act like I live it. I tell everybody I live it. That's what's hypocritical. See, it's not hypocritical to say, man, I believe in this, but I fall short. And I'm working on it, but I fall short. That's not hypocritical. So there's no room for hypocrisy. There's no room for judgmentalness if you get the gospel. Okay, that's the first thing I wanted to review. Here's the second thing I want to review from uh, putting off the old self, okay? Uh, What we said last week was that putting off the old self includes this willingness to continually, not just once, but to continually examine ourselves and we talked about this, for, we're looking for the idols to which we tend to be enslaved. That's why Paul says, put off the old self. And then he says, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. And if you remember from last week, we said that this, this little phrase, deceitful desires, we said that it's the Greek word uh, uh, epithumia. Epithumia. And that Epithumia is not, say, it's not saying that what's wrong with you is that you desire bad things. That's not what it's saying. Epithumia says that what's wrong with us is that we over-desire. We have inordinate desires for good things. See, what we tend to do is we take good things and we tend to turn them into ultimate things. Like sex, success, career, achievement, relationships, approval from other people. All of those are good things. But what we tend to do is take good things and turn them into ultimate things. And so putting off the old self means to be looking for these areas of over-desire in our lives in which we tend to believe that life wouldn't be worth living if I couldn't have you fill in the blank. That's an idol. That's an epithumia in your life. It's an over-desire for something good. Okay, now hear me. I want you to hear me. Because i got to tell you something. My wife and I just went for a, a drive last Sunday afternoon after I was done talking about all that. And uh, she sort of graciously, gently chastised me that uh, she wanted to hear something that she didn't hear me say. And uh, when my wife gently chastises me like that, uh, I fix it. 
That's what I do. And so here's, here's what I want you to know. When you find those epithumias in your life, those things that you've turned, good things that you've turned into ultimate things that you tend to be enslaved to that are idols, here's what you need to know. That's hard work. And it is painful. And it is usually not done alone. This is where trusted good friends, uh, counselors, uh, 12-step groups uh, can be a great deal of help to you. Because here's the thing, if you have spent your life making something your identity, if you have made an epithumia, if you've made it your ultimate uh, goal in life, if you've turned a good thing into an ultimate thing, digging that stuff out of your life, it's, it feels like, like mourning the loss of someone that you love. It's hard, it's painful, it's awkward, and sometimes you will feel like you are grasping for something that you, just for something to hold on to. But if you ask anyone who's ever given up an addiction, they will tell you that's part of the process of, of finding freedom. It just is. Okay. So I had to fix that. My marriage will be better this afternoon. So uh, thank you, Amy, for helping me there. Okay, finally, by way of review, and this is, this is where that we're going to transition into what I want to talk about today. Remember, you can't have putting off the old self without also having putting on the new self. Why? Well, it's like, it's like if you try to stop something without putting something in its place, it will always come back like weeds in a garden. I mean, if you, don't, if you don't plant something in the garden, the weeds will just keep coming back. And so whatever it is you're trying to put off, if you don't put something in its place, it will always just come back. Which is why Paul says, not only put off the old self, but then he comes along and he says, put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Okay, now here's the question. What does that mean? What does it mean to put on the new self? How do you do that? First, focus on your target. That's what it, to start, to put on the new self, you've got to focus on your target. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, there's an old saying that goes like this. If you don't know where you're going, you're probably going to end up somewhere else. And I want you to listen, because this is one of the great problems of our culture today. And I said this a few weeks ago, but... We have devolved into a society of people who are clamoring for change, but we cannot agree on the outcome of that change. We can't agree on what's the target. We all know we need to change, but we don't know what, what are we aiming for? What are we shooting for? What's the, what's the target? And the reason that we can't agree on a target is because Western society has been built on this idea that somehow we can come up with... Uh, values and morality for society without belief in God. In other words, reason and, and discussion and uh, science is all we need to build a society. The problem is that's not possible. At the very moment you begin to talk about things like freedom of expression and human rights and value and dignity of people, uh, those are religious concepts. Do you understand that? Those are religious concepts. Uh, again, I said this a few weeks ago, but science can only tell you what is. It can never tell you what should be. You can only examine what is. Can't say what anything should be. And so there is no basis for developing a society unless you do it on religious grounds. If you go to a counselor and you say, help me change, and if your counselor says, well, here's, here's what you should change into, here's what a person ought to look like, they can't tell you that. They can't tell you what a person ought to look like on the basis of science and science alone. They can't do it. 
the science can't tell you what ought to be. It can only tell you what is. The minute a counselor says, this is what you ought to be, they've moved into the realm of religion. And so you ask your counselor, you say, well, what, what are the religious beliefs that are underlying your opinion about this is, uh, about why I should be this instead of this? And I bet you most of you, most of your counselors, most of your psychologists, most of your psychiatrists will say, I'm sorry, but I don't talk about religion. Ah, but you are talking about religion. If you tell me this is what I should be, that's religious opinion. That's not scientific. That's religious opinion. See, if you, if you tell your counselor or your psychiatrist or your psychologist, if you say, I'm struggling uh, with depression, and he or she says, well, that's too bad. Nobody, nobody should have to live with depression all of their lives. Well, who says that? Who says people shouldn't have to live with depression all of their lives? I mean, if there is no God, that may be the most sane way to live. If you say, if you say I struggle with compulsive sexual behavior, Without religion, a counselor can't say, well, you, you know, you, you really ought to learn to control, control that. Because that's a value statement. They can't make that statement. At best, all they can say is, well, that must be terribly inconvenient. <laughs> because to recommend change is a value statement. That's, that's a religious statement. You see, here's what I'm trying to say. Christians have far and away the most attractive and coherent answer to what a person should look like, what the target for change is. Paul says it right here. We were created to be like God. There's the target in true righteousness and holiness. All through the Bible, this phrase, created to be like God, all through the Bible, what that's referring to is uh, what the Old Testament calls the image of God. Uh, when God created the world, he came to the sixth day, and he was about to create human beings. And he said, he said let us make man in our image. Okay? Now, to be created in his image includes a lot of things that we don't have time to go into today. But part of it means exactly what Paul says here, to be righteous and holy. The book of Hebrews tells us that the ultimate expression of the image of God, the target for humanity, if you will, is Jesus Christ. He's the target. He's what we're aiming for. So when you see Jesus, you see a perfectly functioning human being. Is he God? Yes. But he was also fully human. Fully human, fully God. And so when you, when you look at Jesus, you see a perfectly functioning human being. And so when we talk about putting on the new self, the first step is looking at Jesus and saying, that's what I want to be. That's the target. He's what I want to replace my old self with. Uh, I want to be like him. He's the target. See, the rest of the world can't say that. But we can say, Jesus is the target. I want to be like him. Okay, that's the first thing that it means to put on the, on the new self. Focus on the target. And the target is Jesus. Okay, second. Here's the second thing that it means to put on the new self. Um, you have to know that you have been changed. If you're going to put on the new self, you have to know that you have been changed. And you say, well, wait a minute. Uh, that's weird. You're saying that in order to change, I need to know I've been changed. And that doesn't seem to make sense. How, how can that how can that work? One of the things that I've tried to hammer home throughout this series is the idea that becoming a Christian 
is not simply a matter of moral improvement. Uh, in other words, uh, becoming a Christian is not a quantitative change. Like, you're more moral than you once were. It's not a quantitative change. It's a qualitative change. In other words, you become a completely different person the moment that you respond to the gospel. A completely different person inside. And this is the new self that Paul refers to when he talks about put on the new self. He's saying you become a completely different person inside. Put that on. The problem is it takes a while for that new self inside to work its way to the surface. Now let me give you an illustration that I think will help you understand how you can be changed and still have to change. Okay, Let me give you an example of that. A year and a half ago, uh, Amy and I and the kids uh, moved to Evansville from Dallas. Most of you know that. Uh, Amy and the kids have been there all of their lives, I mean, their entire lives. I'd been there for 27 years, and that's a long time. So we were Dallasites through and through and through. Uh, we understood the culture of Dallas. We knew Dallas like the back of our hands. I mean, we knew the grocery stores, were, were, you know, how to get around. Uh, we knew the roads. Uh, we knew all the local references. It was just, it was part of us. We were, we were Dallasites. Well, in July of 2012, Legally, our address uh, changes, and we arrive in Evansville. And in a sense, you could say that we become, we became an, a new identity. We became, uh, we were no longer Dallasites. We were now, I think you'd say it this way, Evansvillians. Is that the way you would say it? Okay. So we we were no longer Dallasites legally. We were Evansvillians. Okay. So our identity had changed. But we still thought like Dallasites. When we wanted to go out for dinner, we still thought me casita, not Acapulco. When we wanted to go grocery shopping, we thought Tom Thumb grocery store, not Schnucks. When we heard the word expressway, we thought road with no stoplights. Which is why the first time I drove it, I nearly had a whiplash from stopping. What? Okay, this is not unlike what happens when you respond to the gospel. You're immediately changed inside, radically. You're a new person. Paul says you're a new self, but you still think and act like the old self, right? Do you get that? You see how that works? Okay. So you have to keep reminding yourself that you've been changed. Like you wake up and you go, I'm going to go to Starbucks, and you got to remind yourself how to get to Starbucks, okay? Because, you, you know, you, you've been changed, but you still think the old way. So you have to remind yourself, I'm a new person. I have a new identity. Uh, I've been changed inside. I'm completely new, okay? And I want you to understand, folks, get this, that winning the lottery would not change your life as radically as responding to the gospel changes you. Do you understand that? If you became famous, celebrity would not change your life the way that the gospel has changed you. Not nearly as radically. 
if you were to receive the Nobel Prize for curing cancer, a very noble thing, and I hope you do receive a Nobel, Nobel Prize because I hope you cure cancer, but I want you to know it would not change your life as radically as the gospel has changed you. And you ask, well, okay, tell me, how have I explained that to me? How have I been changed? By the gospel. And I, someday we'll do a whole series on that, but I just want to summarize today by, by saying this that the moment that a person responds to the gospel, if you're here today and you have responded to the gospel, let me tell you, the moment that you responded, the first thing that happened is that you were completely forgiven of every sin, past, present, and future, by the cross of Jesus Christ, the blood that he shed on the cross. You were completely forgiven. But not just that. It's not just that you were completely forgiven. There's more. You were also made righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus did on the cross. In fact, the Bible says that you've been given the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Notice what Paul says here in this passage. He says, you were created to be like God in true righteousness. Now, this has life-changing implications, what I'm going to tell you. And I hope that you will listen very closely, my friends, to this, because it is very, very important. I realize, uh, <laughs> even as I talk about righteousness, I realize that if words could hire PR firms, righteousness really needs a PR firm, right? Because it calls to mind people who think that they are so morally pure that they're like stiff-collared and uh, they're smug and they're arrogant, and most of you, when you hear that word righteous, uh, you believe that it's referring to some old, musty uh, religious word. Let me tell you something that is not true at all. The word righteous in the Bible is a very relational word. Uh, it means to be right with someone. It means to be received by someone, uh, to find favor with someone, to be welcomed by someone, to be liked by someone, to be loved through and through and through by someone. The opposite of righteousness is not immorality. The opposite of right, righteousness is rejection. Let me tell you what righteousness is. Righteousness is a boy that you went out with last night calling you today and asking you out again. That's righteousness. Righteousness is hearing that there were 75 applicants for the job, but you were the only one that the company wanted. That's righteousness. What do you feel? What do you feel in those moments when the boy calls again or when the girl says yes or... or uh, when you get the call that says, we want to hire you, N nobody else, we want to hire you, what do you feel in those moments? In those moments, you feel a sense of fulfillment because you were wanted. You, you were received. You were found worthy by someone. That's what righteousness means. It's a deeply relational word. 
So I want you to consider for the moment that, that righteousness is not a religious word. In fact, everyone from Peyton Manning to Russell Wilson to Jennifer Lawrence to Sandra Bullock, all of these people are striving, longing to be righteous. They wouldn't use that word, but that's what we're all strong, uh, longing for and striving for. All of us on the planet want to be righteous. All of us want to know that we're acceptable, that we're worthy of favor in someone's eyes, including our own. And in fact, this is why we have all of those epithemias that we talked about last week. This, these over-desires for good things that we turn into ultimate things. Because without God, we know intuitively that there's something wrong inside of us. And we spend our lives trying to compensate for that, trying to fix it through careers and success and the, having the right man or the right woman on your arm or belonging to the right clubs or, or, or belonging to the right political party or the left political party, whatever party you belong to, or being the best cook or whatever. All of those are just attempts to make ourselves righteous. Or another way that you might refer to that is self-righteousness. But what does all of that lead us with? I mean, all of those epithemias and all of those things that we keep trying to turn into our righteousness, where does it lead us? Paul said it earlier in this passage. He said, it leaves you with a continual lust for more. It doesn't satisfy. It's a hard way to live, striving to be righteous. Guys, um, do you know what a midlife crisis is, man? You know what a midlife crisis is? I mean, I know what you know probably what it looks like. You've seen other people go through it. Maybe you've gone through it. But here's what it is. Here's what a midlife crisis is. It's striving all of your life to feel like you're righteous, you know, acceptable, worthy. And then realizing at some point that no matter what you have or no matter what you haven't achieved, you still don't feel like you're there. That's a midlife crisis. It's like, it's like climbing to the peak of a mountain and then realizing it was a false peak and, and the real peak is a thousand miles away and you will never get there. That's a midlife crisis. Now, those of you who are young men, as you go through your life, you're thinking to yourself, I'll reach the peak. I'm going to get there. And you can keep telling yourself that as you're young, but there's going to be a day that you're going you're gonna to come to and you're going to go, I never reached it. And you're going to say, look at all that I have. Look at how much success I've experienced. And you're going to say, I've, I still never reached it. Or you might say, I never got all the success that I wanted. And here I am at midlife. And I still don't feel like I'm righteous, worthy, acceptable. And that's a midlife crisis. That's what it is. It's a longing to be righteous that you've placed in the wrong places. You know who never struggles with a sense that there's something wrong inside? You know who never struggles with insecurity, shame, guilt, or anxiety about his worthiness? Paul says it here. He says, you were created to be like God in true righteousness. And since Jesus is God, he never wrestled with those things. He never wrestled with insecurity, shame, guilt, or anxiety about his worthiness because he was righteous, true righteous, true righteousness. There's a story in the Gospels where Jesus was baptized uh, by John, 
And as soon as Jesus was baptized, there was this voice that came out of heaven. And this voice said, uh, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now look, when the one who is the center of the universe says, um, I am well pleased with you. Let me tell you something. When he says, I am well pleased with you, trust me, if the whole Roman Empire hates you, it will roll off, your, it will roll off of you like water on a duck's back. It just won't matter. And my friends, when you respond to the gospel, at the moment that you responded to the gospel, you were given that same righteousness of Jesus Christ. You, yes, you, look at your life. You would go, no, not me, yes, you. You were given that very same righteousness where God says about you, this is my son, this is my daughter, in whom I am well pleased. In other words, you're worthy, you're righteous. I love you through and through and through. And when the center of the universe says that, when that really registers with you, you will find that all of the other stuff that you have lived for, while it would be nice to have, having a great career and having success and all of those things would be nice to have, you would find that it would cease to be necessary in the way that it once was. And you see, in order to put on the new self, you have to know this, that you have been changed inside. You have been declared righteous. You are worthy. You're acceptable in the eyes of the only one who really matters. You can put that issue to rest. It's done. It's finished. Nothing can change your worthiness if you've responded to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not failure, defeat, poverty, rejection, persecution, suffering. Not stunning success. Not riches, fame, notoriety, season tickets to the aces. Nothing will change your level of righteousness before the Lord. Nothing can add, nothing can subtract one iota of your righteousness before God. Not a thing. Know that. You have to know that. You've been changed. And if you want to change, you have to know that you've been changed inside. Now, last thing, and I'll end. There's one more thing to putting on the new self. And I'm going, to use, uh, I'm going to use kind of an old word that I hope will help you remember what it means to put on the new self. And it's this. In addition to uh, knowing what your target is, in addition to knowing that you've been changed, you need to, and here's the old word, reckon, reckon the gospel's change in your life true. In other words, you have to take what has happened in your life internally and make it true. Live it on the outside. Do you know what it means to reckon something true? You know what that means? It means to believe something and act accordingly. And I'm going to share with you, uh, as we close, just uh, another little story from my own life uh, about how this looks. And I know I shared a story like that with you last week. You're gonna, I don't want you to give me more credit than I am due. I don't always do this. I'm not perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination. But I, I just I can't share one of your stories, so I'm going to share one of mine. Um, last Sunday night, uh, everybody in the family had gone to bed, and the sermon from last week was already up on the City Church app. And so one of the things I do every week is that after I preach a sermon, as soon as it's up, I listen to it. And, and not listening to it for vanity's sake, I'm listening to it to evaluate it. And there are three specific things right now that uh, when I preach, I'm evaluating. Um, 
I'm not going to tell you what those are because then you'll start looking for them and then that'll be, that'll be a problem. You start sending me emails about it. Uh, I, I'm, I'm looking for three things. And um, so I'm listening to this sermon. And finally it comes to the end. And I notice as it comes to the end, I, I, I just, I'm sitting there on the sofa and I, in my house and I notice I'm not breathing and I'm tense. And like every muscle in my body is tense. Like I'm feeling this incredible anxiety. And um, I stopped just for that moment. And I don't always do this, but I stopped in that moment and I was like, why are you feeling this anxiety? And I realized that the reason I was feeling that anxiety is that the good thing of these, these three things that I'm working on, they're good things, but I had turned them into ultimate things. And it was like my worthiness is based on how well I did at these three things. And in that moment, I just, and again, I don't do this perfectly, but in that moment, I just, this is what it means to put on the new self. I know I've been changed inside, and I know my target is Jesus. And so I just said, I said, Lord Jesus Christ, um, I know you've changed me. I'm, I'm righteous. I'm worthy. Nothing can add or subtract from that. And these things that I'm working on, those are good things to work on, but they're not ultimate. I, I, I've got you. I've got your approval. I've got the approval from the most important person in the universe. I'd like to get better at these three things, but I don't have to get better at those three things to be worthy. Help me to get better at them for your sake, Lord Jesus, and for the sake of the people who have to listen to me every week. But I don't have to get better because I got you and I got your approval and I'm righteous. And that's what it means to put on the new self. Now, I'd like to tell you in that moment that peace, like a river of Xanax, ran through my soul. <laughs> it didn't. But, but I trust that enough of that. And one day, one day, I'll have that down. And you know what this is called? You know what that's called, putting on the new self? You know when you f- begin to put on the new self and then maybe you experience a little bit of peace? I mean, because I did. I forced myself to stop clenching and <sighs> breathe, you know? You know what that's called? Last word in the passage. That's called holiness. Holiness is when righteousness that's inside because you've been changed. Holiness is when righteousness bubbles to the surface of your life. See, some of you think of holiness as just the absence of sin. It's like, I don't do this, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that, and that makes you holy. No, that just makes you moral. Holiness is the presence of good in your life, like peace. That's holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. These, this is what holiness looks like. And you were created to be like God. And true righteousness bubbling up to to the surface of your life and manifesting itself in incredible, beautiful holiness. (laughs) 
Okay, last thing. Once you take the pressure of making yourself righteous off of yourself, that's when holiness begins to shine through. I don't have to keep working to be righteous. I'm already righteous. And when that happens, holiness begins to shine through your life. The gospel is good news. You've been changed in radical ways. You are righteous. Now, reckon it true in your day-to-day experience. And you will change in radical, substantive ways. That's what it means to put on the new self. Next week, we'll talk about the last part of it. Close your eyes with me. Dana and the band are going to come up and, and lead us in a closing song. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, let me tell you, you're still working to find your righteousness in something. That's a hard way to live. Why don't you give that up? Why don't you just give that up? Why don't you let Jesus make you righteous? Believe in Him. Believe in His death on the cross. The blood that He shed on the cross for your sins. You will experience forgiveness and you will experience righteousness when that happens. For those of you who have accepted Christ as your Savior and you have things that you want to work on, would you just put on the new self today? Would you remind yourself today as you encounter these things that you need to work on, would you just, encounter, would you just put on the new self? Would you remind yourself, Jesus is the target, I'm righteous, and then reckon it to be true in your life. This is the good news of the gospel. Lord Jesus, we thank you for it. We thank you that we no longer have to live in bondage to the things that we try to make our righteousness. We thank you that you have freed us from that. We thank you for the truth of the gospel. It is profound. It is powerful. We believe that we can be changed in powerful ways. And so, Lord, would you change us? Change us. And it's in your name that we pray, Lord Jesus.